0: It's time to welcome our first guest to the program. He is a professor of sociology at the University of Toronto, who, along with a colleague, professor of sociology at the University of Alberta, co-authored a piece entitled Partisanship Fuels What People with Disabilities Think About COVID-19 Response. A pleasure to welcome Professor David Pettinicchio to the program. Professor Pedanicchio, David, good morning and welcome.
1: Good morning. Uh, Very good early morning to you.
0: (laughs) Indeed it is, David. It's great to have you with us. Uh, I'm quoting now from the the piece that you and Michelle wrote at theconversation.com. But not all Canadians have been affected equally by the pandemic or by policy responses to it. This is a piece that you and your colleague from the University of Alberta penned together recently about reactions, and the way the impact of COVID-19 on people with disabilities, a very specific demographic group within our population. Why did you opt for this perspective, David?
1: Yeah, so um, one of the things that sort of motivated this project is sort of a a kind of a pretext is uh, based on a lot of the work that uh, my colleague Michelle and I have been working on in the past, uh, which has to do with the The relationship between disability and social and economic barriers. So there's a a lot of things I think that are important to know, you know, that are basically pre-pandemic that um, shed some light as to why disabilities, understanding disability during the pandemic is so important. I mean, we already know that, uh, you know, many Canadians with disabilities are more likely to have uh, one or more chronic health conditions. Mm -hmm. It puts them at greater risk during health pandemics. Uh, People with disabilities also face you know tremendous labor market barriers i mean this is not new at all there are for in canada i mean there people with disabilities are are 40% less likely to work than people without disabilities and you know even in our sample from our study we find that half of half of the sample were not in the labor market when the pandemic hit and several people Many people were looking for work, but of course, these individuals didn't qualify for CERB, uh, right? Because they didn't have a job course, when right. uh, the pandemic hit. So, so that, and so there, it sort of revealed this kind of pre existing problem with, you know, this relationship that people with disabilities have between finding a good job and then sort of getting, uh, you know, being on certain uh, government benefits and this sort of often kind of perverse relationship between. Benefits and 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 getting a a, a a well-paying job. So this again is all pre-pandemic. I mean, mm-hmm. so we also know that people with disabilities in Canada and elsewhere are, when they are working, are more likely to work in kind of lower-paying, non-unionized, uh, you know, precarious jobs, often in you know the service sector, retail, food, and, and in fact, these are sectors that were. Among the most impacted by um, by the pandemic,
0: definitely, yeah. Um,
1: so you know, all of these kind of things uh, are, you know, are, are 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 preexisting to the pandemic. The fact that people with disabilities in Canada, you know, are have less wealth and less assets. They're, it's they they find it more difficult to weather economic storms. Uh, you know, these kinds of things uh, are not new and are, are certainly not. You know, uh, created by the pandemic, but the pandemic has definitely, uh, you know, raised new issues, but has certainly also, uh, you know, uh, shed light on these pre-existing problems, and also mm-hmm. the fact that these there's cracks in the way that the government has reacted to the pandemic, and um, uh, you know, and I think if you look at that period in the in, in the early part of the pandemic in 2020, I think it's pretty clear that. Uh, people with disabilities and chronic health conditions, we're not really part of the, you know, the political conversation about what, kinds of policies are necessary to help uh these kinds of marginalized communities
0: out yeah you talk about shedding some light on uh groups within our society and of course the pandemic has caused much sunlight to be shed on areas of our society that uh, in many cases david we would prefer just not to to deal with and for example in addition to persons with disabilities we're also seeing a lot of uh information and light being shed upon long-term care of Canadian elderly uh, persons, and not all of the findings have been very comforting either. So, I'd like to go back though. You talked about SERB a few moments ago, mm-hmm. and and the fact that uh, in many cases uh, the uh, people uh, with disabilities who who didn't work the previous year and therefore had no uh, employment history uh, couldn't uh, uh, couldn't af- af- apply for, couldn't qualify for SERB. Is it safe to assume, David, that the majority of disabled Canadians were not able to access many of the new pandemic-specific federal programs?
1: Well, we certainly think that that's the case based on our sample. And we sampled over a 1,000 Canadians with disabilities and chronic health conditions. And as I was saying, half of our sample were people who were not working. Uh, during the pandemic, and, and, and many of our respondents were in the process of looking for a job. Right. And so these are individuals who, you know, told us that they are basically relying on provincial benefits, which vary considerably depending on where you're living. Uh, and, and many told us that without SERB, it, it's been really, really difficult because for many, the cost of living has gone up. and mm-hmm. and, and, and And so... What was also very interesting to us is that in our open-ended questions, you know, a lot of people, uh, even people who didn't necessarily qualify for CERB, thought that CERB was a very good idea, right? Uh, potentially because they they may sort of be optimistic that they would one day be able to benefit from something like that. But mm-hmm. what we what we saw is that individuals who did benefit from CERB, those individuals with disabilities and chronic health conditions that either were able to continue to work or uh, couldn't work because of the pandemic and did benefit from CERB, definitely felt more financially secure. Uh, so it, it it does make a, a really, really big difference. And and, it's, it's, and, it, and we can tell that from a sample.
0: And typically, though, the, the federal programs were sort of add-ons, as as, this, as you mentioned already. Uh, the case with most persons with disabilities in terms of the source of their benefits is the provincial level, isn't it?
1: That's correct. And and I think that as the pandemic unfolded, and I think it's important to, to let listeners to, to remind listeners that we began the study in April of twenty twenty. So right. this is quite early in the pandemic and we conducted the I mean, once we put together the questionnaire and ran the survey, you know, this is June. And so it's important to because, you know, the pandemic is such a sort of ever evolving thing, but if you go back to that time period it, what became clear is that people with disabilities were not going to benefit from much of the of the federal response and, right. and it wasn 't even just the sort of economic response if you recall at that period of time, even like the social distancing measures that were put into place, the you know mask wearing et cetera kind of basically ignored the the specific circumstances of people with, many people with disabilities who cannot wear masks, right, yeah. and you sort of have mask shaming. And then the yeah. fact that social distancing is having even more of an impact on people with disabilities.
0: Joined uh, on the line from Toronto by Professor David Petanikio. David is a professor of sociology at the U of T, who, along with a colleague, also a professor of sociology at the University of Alberta, have been uh, interviewing and speaking with uh, disabled persons since the beginning of the pandemic. And David, it's an interesting time that uh, you are joining us this weekend as we uh, went across the one-year line of uh, uh, the pandemic, uh, officially being in our midst and being recognized as such after hmm, weeks of denial nonetheless it's it's official for over a year now last april you and michelle began to focus on disabled canadians and started doing national surveys of those people who were who who did you use as your survey base did it go did you go online and ask for volunteers or did you already have a database of persons with disabilities that you could access and and request participation or not
1: Yes, that's a good question. So um, we uh, wanted to make sure to have a, to, to include uh, people with different types of disabilities and chronic health conditions, and in order to to, to make sure that we have a you know a, a good number, we used um, a quota based sampling, and that's sort of done through uh, an online um, platform called Qualtrics, and this allowed us to basically sample the sort cross nationally uh to get a sample that looks pretty close to uh, or having characteristics pretty close to the general population. This was very useful to us because oftentimes general surveys tend to uh, uh tend to have underrepresentation of the very people we wanted to try to uh you know find out about during the pandemic. So we found this to be a very useful tool to us and we also did some qualitative interviews about 50 follow-up interviews with uh with participants who cho- who uh, who uh, were uh, interested in doing that with us, and we learned quite a bit about people with disabilities, especially early in the pandemic when uh, we weren't sure what exactly to expect. And We went into this thinking that uh, th- thinking about the pandemic through this disability lens, for, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. was going to be the fi- the fundamental sort of way to think about. Uh, you know, how people understood uh, government response to the pandemic. But we actually found that other things matter, too. (laughs) Um, You know, more broader political things uh, came into the picture. Um, And and, and somewhat, to some extent, it was a little unexpected for us. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that if we go back to that period in in 2020, one of the the things that was sort of going on uh, was that, you know, there was an interest in kind of pitting Canada against the United States in terms of like how swift Canada's response was to Mm -hmm. the pandemic and that, you know, one of the reasons why Canada was able to act so decisively was because, you know, compared to the United States, it seemed like Canadian political leaders uh, were kind of on the same page. And I mean, for any ranging from, you know, believing that the pandemic is a real thing, uh, that, you know, it's hurting Canadians in many ways, including economically, right? That, Something had to be done you know immediately to help Canadians, right so you know we also entered into this with that context of oh, Canada's doing a really, really good job in acting quickly, especially compared to its neighbor to the south sure. so we sort of this, we sort of went into this thinking there's a disability lens for sure, but there's also this other lens of well, if there's so much consensus among political elites, does that translate into consensus among the public, and we actually found that that is not the case.
0: I think another finding, and it's the very last sentence of the piece that you and Michelle wrote for theconversation.com, and I'm going to just read the whole thing. It's quite short. It illustrates the importance of not treating people with disabilities and chronic health conditions as either an apolitical or or homogeneously political group. In other words, just because you're a person with disability doesn't automatically mean you vote NDP or whatever that exactly. political affiliation might be. It's not It's not groupthink. They're as individual politically as any other voter in the country.
1: That's exactly right. And I think, you know, the idea, and I'm glad that you raised that, because I think the, the idea that, you know, people with disabilities might be sort of an issue public that because of their particular position and and experiences with with the government with benefits with health care with you know, inequality and disadvantage that they are somehow all going to be you know homogeneously the same politically. exactly fact, yeah, yeah. Find that to be the not the case at all
0: it's I, a common mistake think, though isn't it david
1: i think it is i think b- both in terms of the way just you know everyday people think about um you know groups and how even how you know academics you know proceed with thinking about uh politics Mm is that, oh, these groups tend to have similar attitudes. And we're not saying that they don't, but what I think we find, which is very important, is that actually the kind of political polarization that we find in in, in, in how people with disabilities understand government responses kind of echoes what we're finding in the general population, you know, among Canadians more generally. And, you know, that is that conservatives were very, very negative in their attitudes about policy responses. And that was True across the board when it came to our sample, as well as these regional divides that I think you know are well now we are well aware of in this country that you know it's not just for example Quebec, but also we found quite a bit of neg- negative responses and 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 very and much less neutral kind of responses in the prairies, right so I think it's part of a broader trend of of polarization among the Canadian um, electorate.
0: So, David, curiously, because now that we've sort of uh, sorted out the fact that persons with disabilities are as varied uh, opinion-wise as any other group within society, however, let's talk about where they focus. Those those persons with disabilities who are frustrated, along with every other sector of the population after a year of this stuff, but who, who were persons with disabilities most frustrated with, the feds or the, the more local uh, provincial governments? governments wherever you went
1: this is a good question we're actually currently working on uh, uh, other work that looks specifically at provincial governments but one of the things that we thought was very fascinating is that we were trying to figure out well does this sort of concern does the fact that conservatives uh are holding more negative attitudes towards the federal government which is you know run by liberals mm-hmm. does that how does that translate into provincial governments where there's much more variation sure. in their governments and um and well I mean we don't have any we're still sort of looking at preliminarily, but like in Ontario, for example, where there is a conservative government, mm-hmm. we actually do find that um, liberals uh, are more supportive of the uh, at the time were more conservative of doug ford's conservatives than the conservatives <laughs> so and so I think that says a lot about how people are understanding these broader political these broader issues of uh, you know Government overreach, which we, we found a lot came up in, in people who did have negative attitudes about government responses, this feeling that there's waste of money, that people who are undeserving are getting served, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. It's people who are scamming the system, that they're, we're going into too much debt, that we're never going to recover from that, that these restrictions are so strict that it's, t- it's encroaching on civil liberties. But we saw a lot of those attitudes play out. So and, so, and I think that what what is interesting is that that might be playing out at the provincial level as well. And that's sure. certainly something that we're trying to investigate.
0: Mm-hmm. And, of course, it varies. Uh, Mr. Ford in Ontario, uh, decidedly less popular than Mr. Horgan here in British Columbia, the most popular of all the individual Canadian premiers. And Jason Kenney next door in Alberta, dead last in the whole group. So, I mean, it really is quite a quite an up and down situation. It's not uniform across the board with respect to provincial uh, allegiances or frustrations, but it is a fascinating story. And a year into all of this crisis, David, I can't let you uh, go without addressing one issue that I'm sure is paramount in the findings that you and Michelle are not only working on but have already discovered, and that is the element of isolation Amongst persons with disabilities, we see it with seniors, people who, for whatever reason, are confined and unable to uh, move uh, easily within the population. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about your findings uh, on isolation.
1: Yeah, this is a really important problem. And, you know, we already know that people with disabilities, when it came, when it comes to mental health, it, there was already a, a, a mental health crisis. And we know there was a mental health crisis in this country, you know, more generally before the pandemic. Yep. So the pandemic has definitely taken a significant toll. And one of the things that we find in other work is that people who are very concerned about getting COVID, and that's especially the case among people with disabilities for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. and also people who are financially Basically, devastated by the pandemic are expressed considerable anxiety, stress, despair. These are all contributing to deteriorating mental health. Not to mention the fact that the pandemic has also disrupted, uh, potentially, you know, uh, mental health care sure, yes. and, you know, access to care workers. Mm-hmm. All of these things have further exacerbated these problems. And I think that we're going to be facing, Uh, a really long term problem and how to, and how to help. People who have struggled and continue to struggle through this pandemic,
0: David. I appreciate your taking time to be with us this weekend. I appreciate the work that you and your colleague Michelle uh, Marin are doing, uh, Murato, I'm sorry, are doing in, on this. And I'd very much like to, as you say, you're you're working on another extension of this survey right now. When you have another set of results to talk about, can we get together and uh, explore what you found again?
1: Absolutely. I look forward to it.
0: Thanks very much, David. Appreciate it. Our best to Michelle, and, th- and uh, have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. There's Professor David Petanikio from the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. If you want to read what he and his colleague Michelle Morato have written, it's at theconversation.com. And it's called Partisanship Fuels, What People with Disabilities Think About COVID-19 Response. And as David went on to say, surprise, surprise, they're exactly the same in their attitudes as everyone else with the ability to vote in this country. Almost a year ago, on March 13th, 2020, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Ontario closed its school buildings. All K-12 teaching in publicly funded schools in Ontario migrated to online distance learning formats three weeks later. The closure continued to the end of the 2019-20 school year. Very similar to what happened in every other province. Our guest this morning, joining us from Ontario where she is an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at York University and has written a report on teacher perspectives. So we know a lot about parents and kids during all of that time. What about teachers? So let's talk and welcome Sarah Barrett to the program. Professor Barrett, Sarah, good morning and welcome. It's great to have you with us this morning.
2: Good
0: morning, Sterling. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the format here that you involved because you're a, you're a professor of education. You teach teachers. So what uh, when you, uh, Ontario, did the closure just over a week ago this week, uh, w- did you pivot to this study of teacher reactions? Uh, because I suppose, Sarah, we should probably start by saying one statement you make in this report is this is not online learning This is emergency learning. Let's take it from there.
2: That's right. And I do make that distinction because, of course, online learning has been around for a while. And like any sort of structure for for learning, you know, you can do that very well, especially if the teachers have the time to plan. But, of course, in an emergency, these teachers that had to suddenly shift to being online They had not planned for an online format. They'd always planned for face-to-face. And so I don't think it's fair to compare the two. And that's why I just make the distinction just so that when we're talking about what happened last spring, people don't see that as somehow talking about online learning globally because I don't think that's a fair comparison.
0: And I think, uh, again, from the the point of view of understanding the conversation, our listeners need to know that your report is entitled... Emergency Distance Learning During the COVID-19 Pandemic, Teacher's Perspectives. And you issued your final report actually just a few days ago. Um, What sort of feedback have you received already from some of your former students now in the teaching profession?
2: Well, teachers are frontline workers, right? So as in any sector during an emergency, it's the frontline workers who know best how policies, procedures, and plans are affecting the situation on the ground. And so what teachers have told me is that they need enough warning so that they have the time to plan in a way that protects vulnerable students from disproportionate harm, and they need, the school boards need enough warning to ensure that the resources are in place for all students to be in a position to learn, and for all teachers to be in a position to be able to reach and teach their students. Because And you may have had the same situation in BC, but certainly in Ontario, there are sectors where, especially in northern Ontario, where they don't have broadband um, internet. Yes. So there were students teachers who didn't have internet. So what does online teaching work? How does it work there? Mm-hmm. Um, there are, of course, students who live in poverty who, who didn't have the devices to, have, to be able to go online. They, th- they had always gotten online just with their mobile phones. That's not going to work mm-hmm. when you're trying to learn. There were situations where there were students with special needs who really needed to be in person and suddenly were not. They were suddenly separated from their teachers. And and so what the teachers were telling me was that this sudden change um, became more difficult mainly because they weren't able to plan to deal with their vulnerable students because they're the students that will always bear the brunt if there are gaps in any emergency response.
0: Is it safe to say, Professor Barrett, that across a province as huge as Ontario, the reaction and the pivot uh, readiness of some school boards was better than others?
2: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I think what I would say is that every school board had different complications. Mm-hmm. And so in the Northern School boards, for example, like I said, there was the problem with there There was just no Internet available. And I would say at a school level, different schools handled it differently. Um, some of them decided to do a paper-based sort of distance learning. Uh, it is also the case that if it was a school board that had a lot of students that um, were English language learners and were suddenly switching to a text-based, you know, online format, that those students were suddenly having more trouble. So I think it had more to do with context. Um, I think across the board, however, it was about timing, like Mm -hmm. when they were told, how much warning they were given, um, whether they had the resources or not. And I think it's hard for me to say, you know, I, I don't want to evaluate what happened last year because everybody was scrambling and everybody was doing their best. Sure. What I would say is that now that we know what happened, now that we know what those gaps are, now we had better do some emergency planning because that's our responsibility because we know that is the vulnerable students that will bear the brunt if we don't do it well.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that you would talk about next time because uh, there, there, we know it may be, I, I hope, uh, another 100 years, frankly, before we have to deal with this, as, as was the case a 100 years ago. But as we've well, learned through so many strata of government uh, 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 preparation, uh, how ill-prepared we were for this sort of national emergency at, at so many different levels. And the education system is a part of that uh, lacking in preparedness that we've discussed. But only a small part, as as we found many areas of uh, that we expected as a citizenry to be prepared for something like this, sadly lacking. So if if nothing else comes of this, Sarah, it's going to be the education system will probably never be again in a situation where it was caught this flat-footed.
2: It's interesting you say that because, of course, as you know, in Ontario, schools closed again in January. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, and I kept in touch with the teachers that I interviewed, there were 50 of them, and asked them, so, how did things go? And what they said was, it was the same scramble. Mm. So the emergency planning that should have happened between, right, between what happened last spring and closing again in January apparently didn't happen. So I, I really think... I think we really need to put in a concerted effort. We we now know we need to do this planning and it isn't fair to the students, it isn't fair to the parents and it's not fair to the teachers either. I mean that the teachers, the parents and the and the students are the ones that are dealing with this more than anybody within the education sector and um, without the planning, the logistical planning, how are we getting devices to students? Without the um, determining which students need devices before, without working all of that stuff out ahead of time, which we can easily do, mm-hmm. it isn't fair. It isn't fair to those stakeholders um, because they can't do the best job that they want to do. And as you know, teachers are professionals. They have an ethical duties, which um, many of them said, you know. It really, it felt like I couldn't do my job because there were students I couldn't reach. Sure. And if I can't reach them, I can't help them.
0: Joining us on the line today to talk about her report that she's just issued a final report on teachers' perspectives during the emergency distance learning experiment in the first half of the COVID-19 pandemic when the province of Ontario, like all other Canadian provinces, closed all the schools. Sarah, I'd like to talk a little bit about the home front because uh, you've discussed at some length uh, the reality that teachers have uh, been compelled to adjust to in this emergency learning situation. It's not a structured online situation, the kind you can prepare for. This was scramble on a good day. So let's talk about the home front where millions of Canadian moms and dads became, however reluctantly, assistant teachers. How'd that go?
2: Yes. I mean, it was, it was extremely difficult. And of course, I was speaking to the teachers and not to parents directly. but mm. most of the teachers who were who were teaching the elementary, they really they 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 were very worried about their parents because of course, they knew that the parents were dealing with other things, right? They were either having to work at home while trying to help their students with the younger children there was no way for the teacher to simply interact with say a child in grade one without the parent being there
1: sure.
2: um, they knew that there were some there were some kids whose parents were frontline workers, and so the kids were worried about their parents mm-hmm. um, so you know you had these family dynamics happening everybody dealing with a crisis while trying to create a space for the students to learn and uh, and from any, any of the interviewees who talked about the parents said the same thing, that they were, they were worried about them, they were trying their best to support them, but they completely understood when a parent said, you know, I'm sorry, I have to not participate um, in this online learning, and I'm just going to focus on making sure that my, my family is well.
0: Well, and I suppose, uh, particularly for parents of children with special needs, the pressure would be yeah. enormous, wouldn't it, Sarah?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and the special education teachers that I spoke to that were in the elementary especially, um, they had also acted as a sort of way to um, bring resources to the parents as well because they had, they had very good connections, knew exactly which um, sort, of, uh, sort of people could help them, but the problem was that a lot of those services were closed and the parents then were just on their own and that made things especially difficult. Um, it was also the case that with some students, uh, this sudden sort of separation from their teachers was very traumatic for them because, of course, as you probably know, there are special education situations where the students are kept separate. They're called um, community classes in mm-hmm. Ontario. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a very special you know, relationship that teachers have with the students there and with the parents. It's a, it's a very, uh, they work together as a team to help that student, and suddenly the parent had to be completely alone without the services, without the teacher. And it was especially hard on them and the child.
0: And one other aspect of the report I'd like you to touch on, because we don't have time to dive too deeply this morning, but this is an important aspect. Mm -hmm. And it's the part where where, where teachers are parents too. And uh, yes. so, teachers, we always talk about this this work life balance, and how, when uh, you mentioned just moments ago, and so many parents who, who who would take off to go to work five days a week are now doing it all from the dining room table, and being a teacher, and 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 and. Well, uh, if you are a teacher, well then you're that's your job too. So, talk to us about what you discovered amongst the teaching profession about that work life balance.
2: Yes, and very much. Um, it was was a huge issue for some of the teachers. Um, So I'd say, you know, almost half of the teachers had caregiving responsibilities, the ones that had been in the survey. And they were saying things like, you know, I don't know how I can teach students synchronously uh, while also taking care of my child. Mm -hmm. Or my child has got to learn, you know, their school age and I have to teach them, you know, so that they can learn their material. Plus I'm teaching my class. And so it was actually you know, people made adjustments as much as they could, but not everybody was in a position to make the best adjustments that, that worked for everybody involved. And so, it was it was a major stressor for a lot of the teachers. Uh, and again, because there is this sort of pressure because they're professionals, they know what they need to do for their students, but there's the additional pressure, as you say, um, with just taking care of their own family. It was uh, some very some very poignant stories um, came forward, and it was especially true for the really, really young kids who sure. didn't know what was going on, right? So they just wanted to, their parents there. They wanted to be with their parents. And, um, and, of course, the, the parents did not want their child on camera. Mm-hmm. There was that, too. And so their child would want to come in and be with them, and they'd be like, no, you can't. Uh, I'm teaching this class, and so yeah, there's this constant back
0: and forth. Final question to you, Professor Barrett, and we're grateful for your time this morning, Sarah. How how keen is everyone to get back to something resembling normal?
2: I would say very, very keen, although I would add that an awful lot of the teachers said, I learned so much from this experience. I now know so much more about how to teach online, and and how to deal with these sorts of things. But yeah, everybody really just wants to get back to normal.
0: Indeed. Sarah, thank you for this. Uh, I'm just uh, letting our listeners know the emergency distance learning during the COVID-19 Teachers Perspectives final report is really an excellent read. Sarah Barrett, uh, Dr. Sarah Barrett from York University's Faculty of Education, is the uh, author, and uh, you can Google it. It'll pop up for you in seconds. Sarah, thanks for this. We'll talk again. I appreciate your time this today. Very much.
2: Thank you so much Sterling.
0: There's Professor Sarah Barrett from York University in Toronto. A national survey conducted in January by PharmaSave shows that 26% of Canadians admit to having taken medication differently than prescribed or stopped to take it without consulting their doctor or pharmacist. So as a result of this survey result, PharmaSave has taken it upon themselves to launch a public education campaign to raise awareness of the dangers of not taking medication as prescribed. And here to tell- Tell us more is pharmacist Christine Cheng, who is with PharmaSave in Richmond. Christine, good morning and thanks for joining us today.
3: Good morning, Sterling. How are
0: you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a beautiful morning, and I took my medication as as prescribed. (laughs) I'm very happy to hear that. A lot of us don't. Can we go through some of the reasons, Christine, before some of the tips that you have to help sort of nudge us in the direction of taking them as prescribed? You you did a survey, so you had an opportunity to talk to Canadians and find out why uh, we don't take our meds as we should. And there are quite a few reasons, aren't there?
3: Yes. Some of the reasons that were given were that the medication was too expensive, maybe not covered by their drug planner insurance, which would have been a big concern for some people who maybe lost work mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Yes. Um, a lot of people thought, you know, I'm feeling better. I don't need it anymore. And then some stopped because of side effects.
0: Ah, and so the side of the, the meds, they they were prescribed caused some adverse side effects. So rather than go back to you, the pharmacist or the physician who prescribed and say, doc, um, this is this is not the right one. It's 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 messing me up. They just stopped taking it. And that's the end of it.
3: Yes, unfortunately.
0: Oh, my gosh.
3: Yes, you know, I mean, I would always say the first thing to do, especially in a situation like that, is to come in and talk to your pharmacist. We are your medication experts.
0: Sure. Um, and and uh, one thing that I have enjoyed watching BC pharmacists do over the past few years, Christine, is really sort of come out uh, and, and be more of a part of an active participant in the healthcare delivery system. Uh, I've got my flu shots at, at, at a, from a pharmacist for the last few years. And, and uh, uh, I'm probably hopeful that a pharmacist will give me my COVID-19 shot when my time comes up sometime later this year. It's terrific. That pharmacists are now as active in the game as they are, because it hasn't always been the case, has it?
3: No, it hasn't. But we're we're very happy with the direction that uh, you know the practice of pharmacy is taking. Definitely, especially with you know helping with medication adherence, which is such an important issue right now. Um, you know, we're definitely here for our patients in in so many different ways. Um, we can help people. Uh, we, we have a wonderful program, Pharmacy Safe Offers, called Medaline that makes it easier for people to stick with their medications. Um, we help them synchronize their prescriptions so you can refill them on the same day. You only mm-hmm. have to take one trip into the pharmacy. We can help you with like using blister packaging to make sure you're not missing your doses. Uh, you sit down for, with us for a medication review and we can maybe help you understand your medications better help understand why maybe you're not taking your medication. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely taking a step up, and, you know, so many ways we can help.
0: Indeed. And now in most pharmacies, there is an actual place where you can sit down in a, in a confidential sort of environment and have that important conversation with your pharmacist about how maybe one of these new drugs isn't working or it's making you go sideways. It's just not feeling right. Well, maybe we could tweak things and maybe we could try this. Uh, those consultation rooms didn't even exist. Pharmacies up until quite recently, did they?
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And now it's almost mandatory for any pharmacy to have a space where you can sit down and just feel very comfortable and and chat confidentially.
0: So, have you found in your survey, because you talked to over 10,000 people, uh, what kind of demographic information is available to you because of this knowledge, Christine? For example, are older Canadians more likely to be uh, less? Less uh, stringent about observing uh, taking their meds on time and as prescribed, or is it all over the map demographically?
3: It seems like it's all over the map. Um, we we didn't limit it to any particular demographic, so the ten thousand it seems to be a very, really good representation of everyone, sure. all ages. Mm-hmm.
0: So it was uh, was you mentioned it earlier, and I want to come back to it for a second because it's it's a bit scary. Is finances? Or was finances a determining factor for a considerable number of people when you talk about not taking meds as they should?
3: Uh, I will be honest, I don't remember the exact percentage. But it, it was brought up as a reason mm-hmm. for people not to be compliant,
0: mm-hmm. and, and some people, of course, uh, don't have uh, extended Medicare. A lot of people have uh, a benefit pla- package of sorts through their employer, uh, and uh, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, uh, the benefits include a certain percentage of, of prescription drugs and that sort of thing. But if you don't have that benefit, and particularly if you uh, also don't have a job, as pandemic as the COVID pandemic has. Ruthlessly proven to millions of Canadians, that's capable of happening. Then you're in some kind of difficulty, aren't you, Christine? Uh,
3: yes, you you could be. Uh, but once again, you know, come come talk with your pharmacist because sometimes we can find ways to help you with your medication coverage, whether it be. Finding you an alternative medication that mm. may be more affordable, right? Um, or sometimes there are we call them smart cards, um, benefits that are offered by some of the drug companies for certain medications that may help. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, maybe even switching you from a brand name to a generic alternative. So there are there are different ways we can find solution for you.
0: Okay, and what about people who just plain forget? You talked a little bit about uh, some of the, and, and I mean it just happens. Life happens. Life mm-hmm. gets. It's in the mm-hmm. way of being organized. <laughs> so, what do yes. you do for people who just have difficulty remembering to take the darn things every day?
3: Well, one nice thing is most of us have our smartphones, and we can uh, set wonderful reminders that ping us you know when we're supposed to take our medications. Mm-hmm. Uh, we you know, as once again, bringing up the idea of the blister packing packaging for those who have multiple medications right. or more complicated. Um, arrangements for the medications. It's, you basically have your morning, your lunch, your evening, your, um, dinner time dosages and you, you can just pop them out. It's like, it's like popping out your, your gum. Sure. You know? Yeah. So that, that can help.
0: I'm looking at some of the numbers here, Christine, and I'm quoting now. Of those surveyed, only 14% say they have been more diligent with taking their prescribed meds during the pandemic, and they were. Uh, the, and their reasons were, I guess, pretty obvious. They were feeling particularly vulnerable and and being at greater risk. They want the very least they wanted to do was at least take their meds every day as prescribed. But that's only 14%. That's that's remarkably low number don't you think
3: uh, it, it feels a little bit low um, but uh, to be honest it's it, it it surprised me mm-hmm. um, just because you know people you we would think hopefully most people want to be in their best shape possible sure you know, and if they' using medications can help improve um, their health then you know it would make them hopefully experience covid 19 less severely if they were to get infected, and also because when I mean, a lot more people are home more often, and it's just we would think it makes it easier for them to remember. So it is a surprising number.
0: Is there a PharmaSave website, Christine, where people can go? Because I know that as a result of talking to ten thousand Canadians and realizing how few of us are as diligent as we all should be with respect to taking our prescription medications on time, I had a toothache a couple of weeks ago, and I went to the dentist, and they said, "Well, we can't fix it because it's infected. So you have to take these pills and take every pill in the bottle." then come back and see us. So that's what I did. Nothing worse than a toothache. Oh, Christine, oh my gosh. Anyway, uh, that's uh, so that's also a part of it uh, in terms of adhering. You, you talk about medication adherence and adherence not only to the instructions in terms of a, a, a number of pills per day, but also uh, staying on that routine and finishing all of those bottles, Right.
3: Yes, yes, and absolutely. Uh, you know, if you go to our com website, you can download a, a few free tools. There is like a medication compliance checklist you can use. Mm-hmm. You can always download our eCare app, which would help. It's one way to set up reminders um, and to, to make sure that you're, you're remembering to take your medications and also to be refilling them at the appropriate time.
0: All right, so I've just pulled up pharmasave.com and manage your medications, manage your health. Start today, ask us how, and all sorts of tips right there at pharmasave.com. Christine, thanks very much for being with us this morning. This is terribly important stuff, and I suppose the, the bit of a jolt to us all early on a Saturday morning is how few of us are compliant and how so many of us need to kind of pull up our socks a little and pay a little more attention to those prescriptions.
3: Yes, absolutely. Everybody listening, if you're on medications if you have chronic health conditions, just make sure that you are taking them because we don't want you to experience any complications or to worsen your medical condition or even, you know, hopefully not to drive you into the hospital. So, you know, everybody take care.
0: That's right. And when in doubt, sit down and have a conversation with your pharmacist. Like Christine Cheng, always ready to sit down and have a conversation. Christine, thanks for this this morning. Great to have you on the show and have a great day.
3: Thank you so much for having me on your show. Take care, Sterling.
0: You betcha. Christine Cheng from PharmaSave in Richmond. And the website, friends, is pharmaSave.com. Rob Williams joining us now. Rob is the sports editor from the Daily Hive. Uh, good morning, Rob. A couple of things to talk to you about. I wanted to have a go at the XFL-CFL uh, business that they're talking about, some kind of merger. Uh, I wanted to talk about fans in the stands, uh, like Major League Baseball already is and hockey is now moving towards. But there's a story that popped up in today's edition of the Daily Hive written by some guy named Rob Williams that goes back to 1988 and the Gretzky era when Pat Quinn and Brian Burke had an opportunity to trade Greg Adams and Kirk McLean and a whole boatload of cash for Wayne Gretzky and they turned it down. It's quite a story. Tell us the story, Rob.
4: Yeah. Brian Burke was, uh, speaking to Sportsnet this week. Um, so essentially <laughs> He's telling the, the old story of, and I, I think this is a story that's well known in terms of the fact that Gretzky almost came to Vancouver. Right, and, and of course, Gretzky almost became a Vancouver connect on two occasions, uh, both when he went from uh, Edmonton to LA. They almost got him then, and they almost got him when he was a free agent, and when he eventually signed with the New York Rangers. Uh, so the Rangers story is another. Uh, that's a story for another day. But mm. the 1988 trade, of course, the Oilers gave up or the Kings gave up a whole bunch of money uh, and players to the Oilers. Right. So apparently the Canucks were um, were in the running, and and, and that's well known, but I, I've, I've never heard these players' names before, and that's what really caught my eye from what Burke said. And, yeah, essentially what he said was that they couldn't figure out the price, and, and the, the price was going to be $25 million. Mm-hmm.
0: And this is uh, 1988, yeah, a, so that's meaningful, though.
4: Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, Burke said in the same interview that it was uh, that the highest, the highest ticket at the Pacific Coliseum was thirty dollars. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of the the business of hockey at that time. It was quite quite different. But they were also going to give up Kirk McLean, Greg Adams, and three first round picks. Yeah. Right? So, um. And of course, the Canucks were a bad team in those days. So, three first round picks were, were you know, going to be probably high picks. Um, the, although adding the greatest hockey player that ever lived would have improved their team uh, certainly as well. But yeah, they, they interesting eventually, the, the deal fell through. Uh, essentially, it was um, the, the Burke is he, he basically said that if they were willing to do that trade. Wayne Gretzky could have been a Vancouver Canuck. And, you know, as it turned out, the, the, you know, the business of hockey just boomed right after that. So, uh, I don't think 25 million, I, I don't put it this way, I don't think the LA Kings regretted uh, giving up all the, all of what they gave up to get them.
0: No kidding. Still, sticking with hockey, our question today and most of our BuzzLine callers are falling in line with the results of this Angus Reid poll. 63% of Canadian hockey fans, Rob, want to scrap the All-Canadian division after this season. Only 37% are saying we want more All-Canadian hockey. Our question was, do you want the North division to continue after this season, or is the lack of variety of competition just a little too boring? That's me, and um, the majority of callers today. We do have some people who've called and said keep it, but the majority leaning exactly the same way the Angus Reed numbers were. What do you where do you come down on this?
4: I mean, I think it'd be cool if they could keep. It. No, I mean, I wouldn't want to keep the only playing uh
0: six teams.
4: That's that's getting old fast. Yeah, uh, but I. I you know, playing again. You know, imagine these games. I mean, the, the Leafs came into town and played two games, and it was it was like an, it was just sort of like a another two games. I I, I feel like, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that wouldn't be the case with fans in the building. I mean, it would have been oh. like World War Three oh, with the Leafs. Absolutely, the yeah. Leafs with fans sure. in the building, like that. That's a real game changer. I don't think it's feasible to play um, to have a Canadian division, even if they did play all the other teams in the league as well just by virtue of the travel yeah. uh, involved so that that would be an issue um but yeah i mean i, I mean I, I think we all just want to go back to normal even if it involves playing the arizona coyotes i think that'll just kind of feel anything that will feel normal we'll we'll kind of
0: be on board with um, i'm looking for i'm looking forward to driving to seattle for the odd hockey game i go down for mariners and seahawks games but i've never been to a hockey game in seattle versus my vancouver canucks i think that's going to be absolutely fantastic
4: I mean it's going to be even more amazing now because people are going to be pent up having not being able to travel for so long. Uh, I think I think half that half that stadium at least is going to be uh, Canucks fans. So it's, it's, it's definitely going to sound like a home game down there. Right?
0: That's right. Like like, can, like a sure Blue Jays that. like a Blue Jays game when the Mariners host Toronto. Uh, only a minute left for this one. What do you make of this attempt by the Canadian Football League to stay afloat by maybe merging with the XFL?
4: Yeah, I mean, I I don't think anybody really knows what it means. Right now, they're just saying that they're talking about talking. Um, and, you know, they're saying that they want to grow the game together. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people already are well aware of the game, so I don't think it's a, an awareness thing necessarily. So I think people are wondering if there's going to be some sort of... Um, you know, play, you know, merging the team, like having teams play each other. And then, of course, the worry is that, um, you know, will the CFL compromise its rules? And because, you know, three down football is not going to fly south of the border.
0: Interesting stuff. Well, we'll talk more about that if The Rock can ever connect with Randy Ambrosi and put something together on paper. I'll look forward to that conversation already. Rob, always a pleasure to make you get up early and chat on the radio on the weekend morning show. Thanks for this. We appreciate it. <laughs> Anytime, thanks. There's Rob Williams. He's the sports editor over at the Daily Hive.